This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. Today's episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. U.S. Bank believes that hard work works, and for everyone working toward a goal, U.S. Bank is here to help. And if you would, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Recently, I spoke with Eva Longoria at the Forbes Women's Summit. She's extraordinary, one of the most formidable figures in Hollywood and in the entrepreneurial world. And she's also an effective political activist. But first, here's what's ahead for the week. Well, the big one, July 9th, Tuesday, All-Star Day for Major League Baseball. Now, the All-Star Game doesn't have quite the panache that it used to have in times past, but whoever wins that game, they get first dibs on the World Series. In other words, if the National League wins, four games out of seven are played at the National League home park. If the American League team wins, just the opposite. Four games out of seven in the World Series in their park. And there's still a slight home team advantage when you're at home rather than on the road. So this will have an impact on the World Series. It'll also be fun. And for those of you who are addicted to baseball, watch the Home Run Derby. It's like going to a golf club and just getting a bucket of balls and whacking away, seeing these players whack away one after another. Should be a fun night. And it's a nice relief from politics. But this week, there's going to be political controversy despite the all-star game. President Trump announced that he's appointing two new people to the Federal Reserve. One of them is superb, Judy Shelton. I know her. She appeared in our movie, In Money We Trust, which appeared on public television. You can find it in moneywetrust.org. She's got all the credentials, PhDs and past experience. She'll make an excellent member of the Fed because she does not, and I underline the word, does not believe that prosperity causes inflation. So even though she'll be only one member of the Federal Reserve Board, she will ask the hard questions. She will help them break out of their cocoon, where they think that prosperity is something to be suspect of instead of embraced. Hi. Well, we have an extraordinary person here, and uh, I have to reveal to you, I spent the time in the green room trying to pry out of her last night. Congratulations, Grand Hotel premiered on ABC <laughs> yes. TV. Yes. And uh, <laughs> among other things, she was a director, executive producer. You're acting in the series. Yeah. Minor little things. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, I was trying to pry out of her uh, information that uh, could not be revealed, like uh, mystery of who's missing, who did what to whom. Yeah. Uh, who, Steve who, watched it. And who, he was who, like, who was lending guy? money to Santiago that the kids didn't know about? I mean, all. And the machinations of the maid, it's wrong done to her, but she's about to do wrong to somebody. I mean, it, it, it's, uh, it's well worth watching. Oh, thank you. I gave and, him a secret, but he's not allowed to tell you anybody. No. So. She, she, she put a thing on me that if I reveal it, I'm going to evaporate. So. <laughs> but what is amazing about it is that this is just uh, one of a number of projects that you're involved in. Mm -hmm. And just uh, going down the list, award-winning actor, Producer, director, entrepreneur, a genuine entrepreneur, we'll discuss that. Same thing in philanthropy. Activist, author, Eva's Kitchen. And uh, a few months ago, a mother. <laughs> a one year ago. 
He turns one yeah. tomorrow. Yeah. Yay. Oh my God, it goes so fast and everybody keeps telling me it goes so fast and I said, stop saying that. Because <laughs> then it happens and he just gets older. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, uh, you have experiences ahead and I'll just give you one piece of advice my father gave me when I became a parent. He said, uh, especially as your uh, kids get older, especially the teen years, he said, you know you're a successful parent when you become an embarrassment to your children. <laughs> so, <laughs> goes, okay. goes with the territory. I'll remember but, that. But uh, then you've got upcoming uh, Dora the Explorer. You're the yes. mother of Dora. I'm, you you I were am. surprised that the whole world knows about Dora. I was. I, as a Hispanic, I thought Dora was like our icon. Um, and when it was announced I was uh, playing Dora's mom, uh, it, 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 people from all over the world called me and they're like, you're Dora's mom. Um, and I didn't know, she, was, she's, she taught English in other countries. Here she taught, she taught us Spanish, but in other countries she's taught English. And so that's gonna be a lot of fun. It was also the first project I did as a mom, playing a mom. Um, and I shot the movie when Santi was you know, eight weeks old and I was breastfeeding and and on set, and, um, and it, was, it was funny because Dora, it's a live action, it's a real Dora, uh, it's not a cartoon. And, uh, and she's you know in the jungle and running around, and there were so many times I, I would be like, I don't think I would let my daughter play with a snake. Like, I don't think, I mean like, all of a sudden, all my motherly instincts were different. Like, it was like, she cannot run back into the crumbling temple. And, uh, and they were like, Eva, she has to save the movie. And I'm like, I just wouldn't allow that. Yeah. <laughs> so it was different. It was a different approach. And then you're doing a pilot episode, executive producer, directing for CW's Glamorous. Glamorous, our, our, yeah. Our longest drama yes, with, with the Brooke, Brooke Shields. Shields. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> Documentaries. Uh, you're doing a 24-7 with uh, Universal, a movie there. And then uh, yeah. Sylvie, opposite uh, Tessa Thompson. <laughs> I mean, what, what aren't you doing? And, uh, I but, don't uh, sing, I don't sing, I definitely don't <laughs> sing. <laughs> but the uh, uh, amazing thing is, and I was surprised to read it, given all the things that you do, I can't believe your mother once told you you're an underachiever <laughs> because you hadn't gotten your master's degree. Yeah. You came from a family of educators. Tell us something yeah. a little bit about, about the environment in which you uh, grew up. Yeah. I, my You're an underachiever. I'm the underachiever. I am the disappointment in my family, let me tell you. I come from, uh, my, I've, there's four girls in my family, no boys. Uh, I'm the youngest of four girls. Uh, my mom has nine sisters, so I had like nine aunts. It was just like no men in our family. It was all women. They were all educated, all independent. Um, they also, most of them were teachers. A lot of them were educated. My mother was a special education teacher for 30 years. And uh, yeah, I, I was on Desperate Housewives and it was the number one show in the world. And my mom was like, well, you know, you don't have your masters like your sisters. <laughs> and I was like, okay. Uh, and so I, she guilted me into going back to school, but I actually went back to school to get my masters during Desperate Housewives. Um, Between takes, you'd do homework. I was. And I would ask the crew for help with my homework, like the cameraman. I'm like, well, what? explain the new deal to me. You know? um, and uh, it was a lot of fun. It was all encompassing. And I, now looking back, I, I was like, how did I do that? But it was important at the time because I, um, crazy enough, when, I don't even, when, when was this? When did I get my master's? 2013. 2013. So uh, six years. <laughs> <laughs> so seven years ago. 
And I wanted to know more about immigration because it was such a hot topic. And I said, I just want to take a class on the history of immigration, specifically for Mexican Americans. And, uh, and that class grew to another class, which grew to another class, which made me uh, enroll in, in getting my master's in Chicano studies. And I thought, oh, this is such a pressing issue. And then to, to be where we are today with that issue is mind-boggling and, and um, disappointing because I really thought like, oh gosh, I've got to hurry up and understand this because I want to help fix it. And, uh, and here we are, it's, even, it's just more of a mess. Well, you bring a unique background. You uh, said, I grew up in Texas, not speaking Spanish, but being Latina. So I was always like a fish out of water. Yeah. Explain. And there also you had a great phrase, we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. Yeah, Explain yeah. your unique background. You've been around 400 years, your family. Yeah, yeah my, I'm a ninth generation American, uh, 13th, uh, 13th genera 13 generations here in the new world. Uh, my great, great grandfather um, came here from, from Spain to uh, what is now Mexico, uh, what was New Spain in 1603. And um, yeah, there's a lot of history. We have a lot of history and so we were on uh, this soil, we still have the same land today in Texas. Uh, and my family was under five different flags without ever moving. Just never moved. They were, they were New Spain, then they were Mexico, then they were uh, France for a minute, uh, <laughs> and then they were Republic of Texas, because, you know, Texas is kind of still a country. Um, <laughs> and then we were United States of America. So uh, five, di five different flags without ever moving, and we still have the same land today. And so that's, my family always says that, which is a lot of Mexican-Americans in Texas. We didn't cross the border. The border crossed us. And um, because of that, um, there is a bit of an identity crisis sometimes being Mexican-American because we straddle the hyphen every day. People go, oh, are you Mexican? Are you American? I'm like, I'm, I'm not 50% Mexican or 50% American. I'm 100% Mexican and 100% American at the same time. And that's okay, right? Like, you should celebrate your well, culture. Well, in your early career, you had this strange situation where they said you're not Latina enough to yeah. act in Latino roles. Yeah. But as you put it, you weren't uh, Jane Smith enough to act in other roles. Correct. I played a lot of Italian. <laughs> when I moved to Hollywood, they thought it was Longoria. And I was like, all right, I'll take it. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, and so I remember I went on one Spanish language audition because I didn't grow up speaking Spanish. I speak it now, but I, I didn't before. And, uh, and I, it was a teleprompting thing. And I was reading it and I said, well, I could read Spanish. Surely I can fake it. And I read it and they, they, they go, thank you, um, you don't speak Spanish, do you? <laughs> I put the accents in the wrong place, and so, yeah, I was never quite Latin enough. Well, and growing up, uh, you learned the value of philanthropy, not only from your family, but from one of your sisters, mm -hmm. who was, uh, had learning disabilities, mm -hmm. and uh, relate, uh, relate to us the school incident with your yeah. sister that really hit philanthropy home for you. It wasn't yeah. just a concept, but this was, this was about the real world. Yeah, my, well, my oldest sister, Lisa, she's mentally disabled, uh, which is the reason my mom became a special education teacher. My mom would go to school with her every day. And finally, the teacher in the class said, why don't you become a teacher's assistant? So my mom did. And then uh, every day, she was in class with my sister. And then they said, why don't you become a teacher? And my mom got her associate's degree and became a teacher. Like, my mom was always uh, with her and really she's the oldest so I was born into her world you know it's not like um, 
you have a sibling and you're like, ugh, why, why do we have to have this person? This is the only world I knew was having a, a sister that was different, and not only a sister, but a whole community. Like all the kids in the class that my mom taught were different. But for us, they were the same, you know? So we re related to that a lot. And I remember my earliest memories were Special Olympics because we just always volunteered. We volunteered so much when we were a kid because um, my sister wasn't allowed to go to the Boys and Girls Club or different activities in the community unless we were with her. So we had to volunteer for my sister to be able to use the, these programs in the community. I, I thought volunteer was a job. Like I was like, I'm gonna be a volunteer when I grow up. You know? <laughs> when do, where do I get paid? Um, and so she really, my mom instilled volunteerism in us very young, but it was my sister who really taught me about compassion and um, putting yourself in other people's shoes. And so one day, my, well, my sister was integrated into uh, a high school, so that means, you know, she's with regular students, normal students, and she's special needs. And so we were always worried about bullying and, and people might be mean to her. And uh, one day she came home without her jacket and, um, you know, my mom was like, what happened to your jacket, Lisa? And somebody had stolen it off her back. Somebody stole my sister's jacket. And I remember I was like 10 and I was so mad and I was like, who would steal a special needs kid jacket off their back? Um, and so I said, Lisa, who stole your jacket? And she said, somebody who must have been cold. She, that's, she really thought that. There was no ill intention. I, I'm, she was happy that her jacket was of service to somebody, you know, and I just, just stepped back and I went, that's amazing to have that outlook forever, to always think of other people and put yourself in their shoes. And the other thing I remember my mom, which was a good lesson, was um, in the morning we would always be late for school because my sister would tie her shoes and that was a very hard thing for her to do, to tie her shoes. And we were always late and I was like, mom, can't we just tie her shoes for her? And my mom said, don't do it, let her do it. And I was like, can't we just tie? And I, every day, and I did not want to be late anymore. And so one day my mom wasn't looking and I tied my sister's shoes and she came back and she got so mad at me. She slapped my hand and she was like, don't ever take away that victory from her. That is her victory. And I was, I was crying when I saw that story because we have to, we have to understand how hard it is sometimes. And, when people are different, but you have to allow them to, to have that victory as well. So she taught me, there's a hundred things my sister taught me that I could go on forever, but please continue. No. <laughs> <laughs> when, well, uh, about acting, you, uh, when did you realize that you wanted to do more, as you put it, uh, there was more to uh, just saying lines and then leaving? Yeah. When did, when did you realize you wanted to uh, be the creator as well as just uh, memorizing lines and yeah. acting? Well, and, and Housewives and Desperate Housewives, you know, Desperate Housewives was a decade of my life. It was 10 years of going to work at the same place. And, and I remember going to work and standing in a mark and saying my lines and then leaving and just not feeling like I was reaching my full potential, using every tool in the toolbox. When did you decide doing that, that you were going to treat this as a sort of a business school? You're going to use this mm -hmm. opportunity to learn the business, not just do mm -hmm. the job of the acting, but get more out of it. Yeah, it was actually early in Desperate Alzheimer's. It was maybe the second year, and I just, 
wanted, I was more interested in the business side of our industry. Like, how are TV shows made? And who are all those people standing behind the monitor? And who, was, who hired me? And then who hired them that hired me? And I just was always fascinated with the business side and, and decided, um, you know, I, I want to know more about this. So I used Desperate Housewives as my film school. Um, and then once I started producing... Uh, so how did you make that breakthrough? You just do it. You know, people always ask that. They're like, what was the one thing? It wasn't one thing. It was a hundred things. I produced a little comedy show at, a, at an improv, and then I produced a documentary that we just ran around and shot stuff, and then I produced... And then it was, it's just you build and build and build. When people say, I want to direct, I go, shoot something on your iPhone. Do something. You know, I want to teach. Go teach, you know, your neighbor's kid math. Like, whatever it is... Just do it. Just go out and do it. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's like Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours, right? And outliers. It's like if you just keep doing it long enough, you become an expert at it. And I think that's, that's what happened. Plus, I think women are natural producers because producing is problem solving, multitasking, dealing with crybabies, dealing, you know, it's like <laughs> babysitting other people, ba babysitting this argument, putting out that fire. And I go, oh, so this is what women do every day. Women are producers in their natural lives. We are CEOs of our homes. You know, we're, we produce our lives. We produce our children's lives. And so um, for me, I was like, oh, this is just all of the skills we all have. Now, in Grand Hotel, uh, you put, consciously put, a number of women in positions that normally would go to men. Walk us through that, how you mm -hmm. actually made that happen in an industry that may talk the game, but yeah. by golly, is a long way from practicing it. So far away. Uh, you know, people go, but we're headed in the right direction. Actually, the number of female directors of big franchise films has dropped. Like, we're hiring less women, and so we're not actually making as much progress as we, as we think we are. But uh, it's definitely a, a male-driven industry, especially if you're a director and a producer. Um, but with Grand Hotel, as, as I was the producer, as we started to crew up um, hiring everybody, which is like 300 people you get to hire, uh, as a producer, I had a say. And I remember the first person we had to hire was a cinematographer, the DP. And the DP um, is definitely traditionally a male role. And so, you know, the studio sends you Tom, Dick, and Harry. And I well, resume is. You make and, that very important point yeah. that it's out of habit. That habit. Tom it's Dick an unconscious done. bias. Tom has done this amount of work for us, and, and Harry's done this amount of work for us. Of course they have a big body of work. You always hire them, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, but there are equally qualified women who don't get the same opportunity. And so I said, I want a list of female DPs. And they didn't resist. They go, oh, yeah, we didn't think of that. And so they gave me the list of female DPs. I interviewed the female DPs. And not only did we hire the female DP, she was the best person for the job. And, and that was, that's a unicorn to have a female cinematographer. So we hired her. Then what happens is she ended up hiring women in the camera department, a, women, a female camera assistant, a female loader, a female, a female grip, and, and it trickles down. And then um, with our directors, we only have so many slots. We had 13 episodes. And of the 13, uh, you hire 13, episode, 13 directors. And I said, we're going to fill those slots with women first. Women first. They get the slots. We filled up seven of the slots, and, and we ran out of women uh, only because they were working, and, and we couldn't. And, and that was great that we had a big majority of women. We had a, a stunt coordinator scene. We needed a stunt coordinator. And they sent me, you know, Tom, Bob, and Dan. And I was like, are there any female stunt coordinators? And they go, oh, yeah. We didn't think of that. They send me the list. We hire a female stunt coordinator, a predominantly male job. So when you're in a position to make change, you have to um, consciously uh, do that with the lens of equity. 
because I think right now what happens is it is an unconscious bias. We just hire the people we always used to work with and we should change that. This leads to uh, Latino actors. Why are there so few Latino actors in commercials mm -hmm. and, and films? You, you, you made the change with the Grand Hotel, mm -hmm. but why now with supposedly the consciousness raised? Yeah. It's so sparse. We, um, we, again, same thing, we don't have the pipeline that other communities have. And so, it, you know, if we go back to the women, you know, women are great storytellers. They're amazing writers and, and directors that are women. Um, but they haven't done a movie, so we're not gonna give them a movie yet. Um, they haven't really written a good script, so we're not gonna give them a script. But men get movies all the time, and men can fail all the time and get another movie, you know? And, you're, and so women get one bite at the apple sometimes. And, um, and the same thing for Latinos, there, there is talent out there. It's just, if you look at resumes, you know, this resume has this many things on it, and this person has only done this many things. And so right now it's about building that pipeline and giving people the chance and the opportunity to have that work experience so that when they are on equal footing between themselves and, and a non-minority or, or a woman and a man, that it's, it's actually we can judge them on, on their work uh, equally. This gets to the uh, Latino community in the United States. It's not recognized. Uh, that in terms of startups, more startups come from the Latino community than any other group in the United States. Mm -hmm. Between, mm -hmm. for example, 2012 and 2017, the number went from 3.3 million to 4.6 million. Latino wages are rising faster than the national average. Uh, it's the largest group in the US, and in a few decades will be well over 100 million. Mm -hmm. And, good thing for the economy, the median age is 10 years less than the national average, and that gives a dynamism for the future. We're younger. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, I have a definition, different definition of young, but that's another, <laughs> another time. But uh, uh, un unheralded success story, now your foundation, yeah. you, made, you make the point, again, not known, Latinas open up small businesses at six times the national rate. So walk us through what you're doing to help these people turn desire into reality, the ambition into reality. Yeah, with the well, foundation. that's what I was gonna say. His, Latinos are the, the majority of small business uh, grow. The growth in our economy comes from small businesses, and the majority of those people starting small businesses are not only Latinos, they're Latinas. They're the women who are starting small businesses uh, faster than anybody else in our country. And so we found that these women don't have the same access to that opportunity or, or capital. Um, they don't meet certain qualifications that the normalized uh, banking industry uh, asks of them, or they don't have the business skill, but they have the desire and the ambition and the aspiration to either create a business or grow a business. And so we found there's a, there was a big lack of um, uh, education for Latina entrepreneurs. And so the founda my foundation has given over $6 million in microloans to women who wanted to start a business or grow a business and who normally wouldn't qualify for your normal bank small business loan. Um, and so that's what the foundation, my foundation does is not only give them access to capital, but gives them the business training that they need to manage that capital. And not only that, Latinas pay back the, the loans at 99%. I mean, it's, it's just amazing. Well, I, 
And you also hit on uh, something very important. You give these uh, entrepreneurs, budding entrepreneurs, the know-how, bookkeeping, seemingly uh, mundane things to uh, make sure they don't trip on stuff that uh, they shouldn't trip on. They can focus on the yeah. creativity. Bookkeeping is a, is a big one, you know, just how to manage your books. How to manage your books yourself, too, because if you can't cash outsource. Cash flow kills so many businesses. I think and they're doing well. And if you can't well outsource on, that, yeah. I'm a small business. I can't outsource that. I can't outsource my taxes either. Um, teaching them how to navigate that world, because that world is also intimidating, not only to, to Latinas, to, to, to women in general, is, is, you know, we aren't given the same, um, I think, respect when it becomes to, to financial intelligence. You know, oh, don't worry your pretty little head about that. And we encourage women, act, yes, worry your beautiful head about that because you should know the inner workings of your business completely. Yeah. And uh, you're a co-founder of Time's Up, mm -hmm. including the Defense Fund, which mm -hmm. has taken over, I think, 1,500 cases, almost 2,000 yeah. cases. Yeah. And yet uh, the progress has been slow. Yeah. Do you see a change? Do you think that could happen? What I think, um, you know, Time's Up was born from the Me Too movement, but Time's Up became a legal defense fund because we wanted to turn pain into power. And the main message of Time's Up and the main initiative is to give women a safe workplace. Everybody. Everybody should have a safe workplace. Like, that seems revolutionary, but it's not. Like, how is that not promised to me when I go to work? I don't want to be harassed. I, I want an equal footing with, for a promotion. I want equal pay. Um, Lily's here. Lily Ledbetter's here. Um, and I, I think the greatest accomplishment Time's Up has done so far is create global awareness that this issue is global. Right, everybody's talking about it. Women in France were talking about it. We thought it was like our issue, and it's not even a Hollywood issue, it's across all industries. Um, and when we launched Time's Up, we didn't launch it as, as actresses. We knew our place of privilege uh, when we did that. We launched it with uh, farm workers, with restaurant workers, with hotel workers, with domestic workers. We united this sisterhood that, that we all shared something in common. We're like, wait, did that happen to you? That happened to you? That happened to me. And I remember being in a room with, with a lot of women and, and they, them having the same experience and being in to two totally different industries, but having that same exact experience, that exact thing happened to me. And so creating that global conversation about it is super important. Um, and then the Legal Defense Fund has been doing amazing work so far. Um, you know, we took on the McDonald's case of all the women in McDonald's who uh, were being harassed. You know, these minimum wage workers who really need this job um, and couldn't A, get ahead, unless some of them were, you know, asked for sexual favors, some of them were just harassed every day by their boss, and they need the job. They were like, I can't quit. This is my boss. What am I going to do? I need this job. So we took on that case, and we just took on the FBI, the women in the FBI case, which, um, you know, is, was another big case. What, uh, what role do you see in uh, 2020, uh, both uh, Time's Up and also the Latino Victory Project, mm -hmm. which you uh, played a critical role in saving... Barack Obama in 2012, when he was in the trouble for re-elect, your uh, project was critical in helping him uh, pull out that election. Mm -hmm. What do you see your role in 2020? Uh, time's up role or just my role or? All of the above. Uh, our role. In 30 seconds. <laughs> our role. Well, time's up. We're definitely strategizing about including women's issues, uh, specifically on the debate stages. There's very rare. I think there was a study that came out that um, in the last 30 years or something, six questions have been asked about 
women's issues and, and you know and it's not it's more than equal pay it's childcare it's you know and a lot of times women think that oh this is my issue I should figure out childcare because that's my problem that's not your problem that's a, that's a big problem you know um, and, and so it goes beyond just uh, you know our health care you look at what happened in, what's happening in Alabama nor uh, Louisiana I mean this this Atlanta Georgia it's just so many things are happening that are um, really walking back our rights as women um, and it's not about being anti-choice or pro-choice this is about um, fundamental human rights and, and people trying to strip those away little by little by little and we have to pay attention and so I think what our role is in the in the 2020 elections is to pay attention because I think we don't I think we kind of get into the two ideologies of red and blue and Republican and Democrat where we really have to look um, not at the not only at the general uh, election but the down ballots because that's where all of these laws are getting passed is in the states you know this the state legislatures are doing some really damaging things and um, those are those are the people we don't really pay attention to you see a sign somewhere in your neighborhood on a lawn and or what well this is New York there's no lawns but um, <laughs> you know you, you just we have to pay attention and 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 it's um, it's it's troubling times for women when it comes to government we also need more women in, in politics we need more women and more more women to have a seat at the table I don't want uh, a table of men deciding my reproductive rights like you don't, you have no idea what that entails. The, the extraordinary energy uh, as an entrepreneur in the clothing line, you made it very clear from the beginning, you weren't gonna lend your name out. And uh, a couple of things stand out. First, you, uh, you said from the age of seven, you were sewing. Mm -hmm. You would sometimes spend eight hours sewing a dress. So you, you, you had a real, you said, I'm obsessed with the construction of garments and textiles <laughs> and textures. My style motto is, comfort. Uh, but you also recognized you had a lot to learn about the business. So you're going to get into it. You had a real feel for it, but you spent five years learning about the business. Quickly walk us through, because yeah. it's uh, very, very instructive. On Yeah. Uh, um, well, it's, it's, it's so interesting, because I think all industries are being disrupted by technology. And so online and e-commerce. And so when I started my clothing line, I was like, I I love to sew, um, and you know that's just not enough. When people go, I'm really passionate about makeup. I'm going to start a makeup line. Well, that, you need more than a passion for for it. You need to really uh, educate yourself and understand the business. And that's how I approached my my clothing line. That's how I approached my restaurant business. When I had um, two restaurants, I had a cookbook, and I loved to cook. And when we opened uh, my restaurant, which was you know 10 years uh, uh, open in Hollywood, it was it was that I always approach it with like, is this a smart business decision? It can be my passion, but it's got to make financial sense. You also learn that it's not always going to work out, but mm -hmm. entrepreneurs know those things happen. Yeah. It's like a baseball player knows you're not going to always hit a home run. Mm. Um, so in closing, how do you reasonably manage so many projects? You once said, I can do anything, but I can't do everything. Mm -hmm. So how do, we, how do you choose what you do? And then how do you manage the time with all of these projects out there? And you, right. you, you, micro, you don't let... Yeah, I micromanage? You're going to say I micromanage? Is, is the furniture right on that set? You, 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 don't, you, don't, you don't walk away from it. I do. You know, I, I am older. So uh, up until now, everybody goes, how do you do everything? And I realize I don't have children. 
right? <laughs> like, I can do anything because I didn't have children. Now I have a baby and now it, things have significantly shifted. Um, so, so living that experience of, you know, your priorities are no longer yourself has um, been interesting to navigate. Um, I'm lucky that I have an industry in which my child can go to work with me. He's by my side, he's behind the monitor, he's in my office, he's on set. He's like, he's just always with me where we don't all have that job. You know, you can't take your child to work. So, so far it's working great. But um, I think as he gets older, he might have an opinion on set. Um, uh, and so for me, I, I realized that's what it was. I, I didn't have, um, I, I got to think purely about myself and my goals. Um, but it is about hiring smarter people than me. And so I, I usually hire somebody else who knows it better, and I pay them to do it, and I just, I'm a sponge and I learn from them. Or I surround myself with, with great thinkers. One thing I learned from the Obama campaign, when we were on the campaign trail in 2012, his campaign was so amazingly, um, the, way, the way it was run was just like a, a, a great machine. Lily and I were talking about it, because he, he was about best idea wins. What's your idea? How do we reach the youth? What do, what, how, do we, how do I reach women? What do you think about women? And it was best idea wins. And that's how I, start, I approach my businesses is, OK, what do you guys think? How can we best sell these clothes? Who do we want to sell these clothes to? What's the message of the clothing? Da, 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 da. And in, 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 my, in my little bubble of businesses, it's, uh, it is that. It, it's, it's innovation comes from many places. And I don't, I don't think a dictatorship sometimes is great. I love the democracy of best idea wins. <laughs> so uh, what course of action would you urge this audience? You, uh, you've been an activist. What advice would you, what, what takeaways would you leave with them? In, in, in where, what? In, 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 term, in terms of uh, pushing the, the ball forward, in terms of uh, overcoming the barriers that still exist, which well, you pointed you know, out funny. are still very real. Yeah, we have a lot of obstacles, but by the way, we know the obstacles. And so that's what I think a lot of, um, a lot of times we focus on uh, the obstacles that women face in any industry. And instead, we should focus on the common denominators of successful women. What did they do right? And let's replicate that. Um, and so I, that's what I did with my foundation when I wanted to do uh, help Latinas with education entrepreneurship. I said, I know the barriers. I don't want to do a study on barriers of Latinas into why aren't they getting into college. We know why they're not getting into college. It's socioeconomic status. It's gender. It's language. It's, it's a lot of things. Um, but, but the people who did break through and did get out, you know, the rose and the concrete, what, why, why was she successful? And, um, and for the foundation, it was uh, parental engagement was the number one common denominator in successful kids. They had an engaged parent that said college, 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 over and over and over that it was instilled in them. Um, the other thing was after school programs. And so um, keeping kids at school as long as possible. It didn't matter what, could it be band or cheerleading? It could be science club or math club. Just keeping the children at school longer uh, created interest, more interest in other subjects. And so those were two surprising things that, that we didn't think about in our foundation and my approach. And so that's what I say to you is instead of focusing on the barriers women face, look at somebody very, very successful and go, what are you doing right? Um, and replicate that. Uh, you once said, I think it was to uh, Knox College, you said, so to me, America is the greatest country in the world because it's an idea an idea that all of us have the opportunity to pursue any vision that we set for our lives. But of course, we have a lot of work to do in achieving the ideal of the American dream and what that means. 
Well, thanks to you, Eva, and your example, someday that ideal will be achieved. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, that was so lovely. Thank, Thank you. So you. Thank you. Thank you. I want to give you the read of the week. It's called The Danger of Attacks on the Electoral College, which has become an issue among Democrats. They want to get rid of the thing. This article by Trent England is in Primus. You can find it on Imprimis, I-M-P-R-I-M-I-S dot Hillsdale, H-I-L-L-S-D-A-L-E dot E-D-U. But England makes the point that people underappreciate the Electoral College that it fights against regionalism and sectionalism in this country. You don't win a presidential election unless you put together a national coalition. It also, amazingly, despite the controversy around it, really gets rid of numerous potential disputes about elections, especially since each state has its own election laws. So read the piece and get a new appreciation for why, once again, the founders got it right for America. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it.